The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. The answer to that question is actually a two-part answer. And again, you've seen that, we've heard it here this morning, but because it is so important to us in our lives now and forever, I want to be explicit about that over the next couple of minutes here. So I'm going to answer that question, what must one see with eyes of faith? The two-part answer, I'm going to answer it from Romans chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you might turn to Romans 3. The main issue in Romans chapter 3 has to do with righteousness. That is, rightness, holiness, purity, moral uprightness, and acceptance before God. And the first eight verses, one to eight, point out that the righteousness of God, God's rightness, God's purity, God's holiness, God's perfection, is seen in contrast to our unrighteousness. All of us. Our unrighteousness is in contrast to it. And then the next verses, verses 9 to 20, go and expand on that theme of our unrighteousness. And here's the first part of the two-part answer about what we need to see with eyes of faith. We need to see that we are lawbreakers. We need to see that we are lawbreakers. You and I have a huge problem when we come to stand before God. He's the creator of all he reigns over all. He is the judge. And the Bible is clear repeatedly everywhere. And here in Romans chapter 3 in black and white, that when we stand before him, we have a great problem. But you need to see that. It needs to come home to you. You need to see it. This is not talking about somebody else or other wicked people. It's talking about you and I, me, you, us, all of us. You must see this first part here, which is bad news. If the second part that you need to see is going to make any sense at all. Here is who the Bible repeatedly tells us that we human beings are. This is both personally condemning and heartbreakingly tragic, if you have eyes to see it. Let me read Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is not a pretty picture. And to be honest, it's rather condemning, isn't it? And the normal human response is to put up a great big stop sign and say, Whoa! Whoa, what are you talking about? No one seeks God? No one is righteous? No one does good? Mouths full of curses? Feet swift to shed blood? What? That's not me. I am very religiously minded. I do all kinds of good things, as many as I possibly can. I don't curse at all. I've never killed anybody. Never murdered anybody. That is not me. That is far too extreme in describing me, or frankly, even any of my friends. What are you talking about? It's a normal human response. Now understand, it is not my goal here. It, It never is, but especially not this morning. It is not my goal to gleefully insult you. Or, or to recklessly offend you. I'm not trying to do that, okay? I say a long list of things here. I'm just reading the Bible. This is God's Word. And because it is God's Word about you and about me, it is true. This is who you are. And in fact, the very fact that this sort of a verdict from God about us bristles us, causes us to bristle in some way, that very response is itself strong evidence that this is true of you. We resist him. This is you. Let's take a look at a couple of these phrases. How about the no one seeks God part? On the one hand, of course, nearly the whole world seeks some sort of God in some way or another. That's the problem. The God of their own design sought out in their own way. Author C.S. Lewis, who, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he once said that God created human beings in his own image, and then we each went and returned the favor. And then, in 10,000 different ways, the 10,000-some religions of the world, we all seek after him, the God that we've made, along our own different paths, and we say, I seek God, and God says, no, you don't. You seek something else that you've created, fashioned in your own image, and you pursue it along a path that you yourselves have created. But you don't seek me. No one, none of us, in and of ourselves, seeks after the one and only true God who made everything that ever is and who reigns over it as Lord. Or how about the feet swift to shed blood statement? Now, perhaps some of us have some military experience and have been in combat in different situations, but apart from that, very few of us have ever killed anybody physically. But Jesus made clear that harsh words of anger and internal heart attitudes of anger equally violate the commandment, thou shalt not kill. All of us fall under that. We all are quick to fight and quick to attack others, and quick to insult, or to malign, or tear down, or belittle with our words, and especially in our hearts, even if we manage to control our words. This is you too. And it's me. It's fundamentally human. 
And because it is fundamental humanity, the verse continues, our paths through life are marked with ruin and misery and the way of peace we have not known. What a tragedy. And it seems to me at this point that I'm talking about law-breaking, sin, that breaking the law of God is an offense against a high and holy judge. And it seems to me that at this point we also should see that it's a tragedy for us. Heartbreak for us. The world, look around at the world. Think of, consider all of the pain and misery and sorrow in your own life or in the lives of those you love. Or if you've had a a rather fortunate privileged life and haven't experienced much of that, think about all the pain and suffering and sorrow that you know very well could come to you this afternoon or next week. The things we go to the doctors to try to avoid and buy insurance policies to protect ourselves from. All those things that we know full well could come to us at any time and no one day will. We all will die. We know that. Read the newspaper. It becomes obvious. Sin has made this world into a grand pile of wreckage. There are beautiful things here, but behind it all is sorrow. Sorrow held off for a day, perhaps, but sorrow coming. Something is wrong here. The world is filled with ruin and misery and the way of peace we have not known. Why is that? Why is that? Because the creation itself has been subjected to sin ever since the fall of sin in the Garden of Eden. The creation has been subjected under this sin and it's broken and it doesn't work like it was supposed to. And then add on to that over the years and years, 60 billion people, 6 billion today, you and me, people who live here and interact with each other, of which verses 10 to 18 are true. You mix all of that together and you've got a world filled with pain and sorrow that doesn't know peace. What a tragedy. It certainly isn't pretty or flattering. But it is true. In our actions, in our thoughts, in our words, we have broken the law of God. And we suffer for it now, and we will stand accountable for it in the future. We are lawbreakers. You are a lawbreaker with great regularity. So we'll all stand before God at the judgment with our mouths stopped, silent, without an excuse, and in this state we will see nothing of God except His dreadful, righteous wrath as He casts us away from Himself, condemning us in our unrighteousness. We ourselves, left to ourselves, are in terrible trouble. You must see that. It is common for us to deny it. You must have eyes of faith to believe what the Bible says is true of you. What God in His Word tells you about yourself, you must see that. If verses 21 and following are to make any sense, are to make any difference to you. Don't dismiss this. Believe it. 
It's true of you. We are good at noticing it in other people's lives, but it's true of us as well in and of ourselves. May God give you eyes of faith to see and to believe these scriptures when they tell you who you are. And may he give you eyes of faith to see and believe the second thing that you must see. The second part of the answer. You are a lawbreaker, but glory. There is hope. Second thing we have to see. There is still hope. Hope in Christ. Verses 21 to 26 outline the nature of that hope. And notice the transition here, the word but at the beginning of verse 21. If you have a Bible and you can look at it, there's a but there. There's a contrast, a switch. There is no way of denying it. The first part of this passage is very negative, very dark, very troublesome. But the next verses can turn all of this on its head for you. There is still hope here. Glorious grace of God is about to show up. Let me read verses 21 to 26. And there are a lot of difficult words here. I'm going to explain a couple of them. But just follow along if you can. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, it is declared not guilty, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. As I said, there are a lot of difficult words and concepts in this section and it deserves a whole sermon in itself, not just part of a very short one. I want to focus this in, though, on the hope that's here that must be seen with eyes of faith. If you had to, you could explain the core of Christianity in verses 24 and 25. You could use those two verses if you needed to. Verse 20, by the law, no human being is justified, no human being is declared not guilty in his sight. None of us can be justified. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, verse 24, the way that we are justified is by grace as a gift because of the payment that is in Christ. And notice here that the grace of God is set opposite to our works. Our works, the things that we do, the way that we behave, how we act was left in verse 20. That has been left behind and we've turned to something else. This is no combination of works and grace. It is not works, but grace in a gift. Being declared not guilty comes from God by His grace alone. And that gracious pardoning of a person's sin is based on Christ's cross. Verse 25, God put Jesus forward 
He offered him, he presented him up, made him to be a blood sacrifice, satisfying God's wrath forever. It's the definition of that hard word, propitiation. He's a blood sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath forever. There's marvelous hope here. Jesus is a sacrifice. Sin has always been so serious to God that He has required death, blood as punishment, as payment for it. But in the wisdom and the plan of God, driven by His love and His, and His merciful nature, He determined God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, determined to do something that we could not do. And God the Son, who dwelt there in the realms of glory, in perfection always, considered the glory of God not something to be grasped, but He came down to earth and He took on a body, not the other way around. He's not a man who became God. It's a false teaching. He's God who came down and became man. He took on a body for the purpose of doing something in particular with it. For the purpose of going to the cross to die, to pay that sin penalty, that death that God requires in exchange for sin. The scripture says that the wages of sin is death. Some death, some death is due. And God has made an option. God in his wisdom came to earth to go to the cross. There is a propitiation there. There is a sacrifice of blood that will turn away the wrath of God forever. And the cross sits atop a hill in the middle of history and God points to it and says, there and only there is a sacrifice sufficient to cover and remove all of the sin of those who trust me. Only there. Only at the cross can you find payment for sin. Apart from that one way, you're left to pay for it yourself. Believe Him. Trust Him. Entrust yourself to Him. Do you see this? With eyes of faith. You must. This is the only way. Middle verse 25. This sacrifice is to be received by faith. In fact, it's in verse 22 and 26 also. Faith. Trusting and trusting. Giving yourself to Him. You're not striking a deal with Him, but you're giving Him all of you. You're laying down in front of Him and saying, Have me. I surrender. Please forgive me. I trust your payment on the cross alone to turn away your wrath from me. This is the only way that you and the God who makes you and knows you and is the satisfaction of your soul. It is the only way that you and this God can have any relationship of peace. It is the only way that he can turn away his face of wrath from you and turn to you a face of love and mercy and grace and welcoming. It is the only way. The ruin and misery that mark your way, all that pain, it can be partially dealt with now as God comes and lives inside of you and gives you joy amidst grief. And it can be fully removed later when he welcomes you into his presence in heaven. Repent. 
Repent of how you've trusted your own ways to try to cover it over your sin. Repent of how you've pursued a God of your own making along paths of your own choosing. Repent means to turn away from that and to turn to something else. Turn to believing and trusting, not in your own ways, but in God's one way, Christ's death on the cross. This is the only sacrifice capable of paying for your sin. Come to Him. I know many of us here have. For those of us who have, Listen to the gospel because verses 10 to 18 were entirely true of you and still are true of you. But a remedy has been supplied to you. You've been forgiven and you are being changed. He is working that out of you. Rejoice in Him. Be grateful here at Easter as you remember these things. You think of Palm Sunday, you think of Christ coming as Redeemer and Savior and Friend. Rejoice in that. Rejoice as you look at the cross. It has done wonders for you. But I also know that there are some here who have not trusted Christ. And I plead with you, come to Him. May you have ears to hear this. May you have eyes to see it. This is the only way. Believe it and embrace it. Trust yourself to Him when He says, I can take care of your sin. Give yourself to Him in your heart. I plead with you. Do so. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.